Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, now offering three FDA-approved therapies for different forms of lung cancer with more in the pipeline. When it comes to lung cancer treatment, one size does not fit all. Learn more at AstraZeneca-US.com. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with Drs. Anise Chagpar and Stephen Gore. I'm Bruce Barber. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a conversation about the Connecticut Cancer Partnership with its executive director, Maria Grove. Dr. Chagpar is an associate professor of surgery at Yale School of Medicine and the assistant director for global oncology at Yale Comprehensive Cancer Center. So, Maria, maybe we can start off by you telling us a little bit about what exactly is the Connecticut Cancer Partnership. The partnership was founded a little over 12 years ago um, through a grant from the CDC. Uh, Every state has one, an alliance, a coalition, a partnership per se. Uh, We are the Connecticut Cancer Partnership. So every state has to deal with uh, the specific issues of cancer burden in their state. Um, And we offer a statewide context for cancer-related programming. We make sure that we have our partners. uh, We are a convener. So um, we have... We convene the groups uh, to discuss and promote and to educate and to monitor um, anything cancer-related in the state. Oh, I'm sorry. The the idea is that cancer is just a bigger idea than one organization can handle at one time. So the, the more minds, the better. So that brings me to the question I was about to ask, which is, who exactly are the partners? We have a number of founding partners, um, the hospitals in Connecticut, the Department of Public Health, the American Cancer Society. Those are the founding partners. And then we've grown uh, to over 300 organizations. They range anywhere from community health organizations and um, uh, AHECs and um, uh smaller organizations to, like as I said, the larger organizations, Yale Cancer, um, Smilo, um, UConn. We, we are very, very blessed in that we have a lot of wonderful and influential partners in our group. Um, so this isn't any one particular hospital. It's really kind of all of the cancer minds and all of the organizations cu- touching cancer across Connecticut. Absolutely. So tell us some of the issues that this partnership addresses. Well, right now we work with the CDC and we work with their priorities. And right now their priorities are uh, HPV vaccination awareness and colorectal cancer. So I'll start with colorectal cancer. Uh, the idea is that we work with the um, the National Colorectal Roundtable, and uh, they're promoting 80% screening rates by 2018. And of course, we're in 2018 now, and we're almost there. Um, Connecticut, I believe, is in the high 70s, which is uh, very good. Um, There's still more work to be done. Ideally, we'd like to get 100% colorectal screening. Um, So there's, uh, we just had a a summit on that, um, which was very successful. We brought together a a number of different organizations, and we discussed what is, what are the barriers to screening? Um, How can we, how can we help patients get more screening? How can we help patients have a better 
process with screening. Uh, if you've ever had a, a colorectal screening, it's um, the prep, which is um, mythical. <laughs> People just assume that the prep is so terrible that they don't want to do the screening. Uh, so it's really about getting the education out there as well um, and, and also working with insurance companies to make sure that uh, screening is a priority in terms of coverage. One of the ideas that um, we're promoting is to have um, companies give out screening days, free days of, uh, of, of employment so that the employee can leave the office, go and get the necessary screenings and not be penalized for it. So let's take a step back for a minute and talk about colorectal screening. I think it would be helpful for our listeners to really understand what are the current guidelines with regards to colorectal screening. So, you know, I mean, I think that many of us are, are think about colorectal screening only as being a colonoscopy, but there are many other tests. Absolutely. There's another test called the FIT test, um, which can be done in the privacy of your own home. The only drawback to that is that where a colonoscopy uh, is good for every 10 years, um, I believe, um, a, a FIT test has to be done every year. Um, so you have to be more proactive if you go the FIT te- test route. But a lot of different uh, providers are offering the fit test as a way to overcome, as we were discussing earlier, that fear of the prep for the colonoscopy. There are alternatives. Yeah, and I, I think it would be helpful for our listeners really to think about colorectal screening in its context. So uh, when you talk about the fit test for people who may, or home-based testing, for people who may not be aware, I mean, there there are fecal occult blood tests where you take a stool sample and you put it on a little cardboard and it gets analyzed for blood. Um, there are DNA tests where they look in your stool for DNA. And those are really the home-based um, the home-based test that you can have done. And as you said, uh, that needs to be done roughly once a year. The PrEP, though, is very important for the other kinds of tests uh, that are also used for colorectal screening, things like uh, contrast studies like barium enemas, flexible sigmoidoscopies, uh, colonoscopies, or even virtual colonoscopies, which I think some of our listeners may have heard about where you swallow a, a camera and everybody has seen the commercials about the actor who was used to, I'm so used to being in front of the camera, but now I <laughs> swallowed a camera. But but the idea really being how important the prep is to see the wall of Absolutely. the Absolutely. And what's really interesting is that there are a number of organizations in the state that are working with nurse navigators to make sure that patients do the correct prep. Um, so there are many steps to this. So there's uh, making the appointment, keeping the appointment. Um, so when we talk about health disparities, we're talking about um, uh, the ability to get to the appointment, the ability of follow through. So nurse navigators are really helpful in especially this colorectal screening area because they can follow up with patients, make sure 24 hours beforehand that they're doing the prep, make sure that they're going to, to, to show up for the exam. So we're, we're working with a lot of nurse navigators at different organizations, community health organizations all around the state to make sure that that particular part of the screening is something that's um, active and working. And the other thing is, is I, I think it's helpful for our listeners to know who should get screened. Um, well, so everyone, <laughs> um, I, I, I'm not entire. I'm not. I'm not a, a scientist. Um, I have a, a different education, um, but. Um, I'm, yeah. Yeah. I'd... So 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 absolutely right. So everyone over the age of fifty should should get screened for colorectal cancer, um, 
and certainly, as you mentioned, Maria, uh, you know, the the interval at which you should repeat the screening really depends on which test you chose, whether you had a colonoscopy, which is every 10 years, or whether you had, for example, a fecal occult blood test, uh, which may be every year. It's really important for people to talk to their doctor about what test might be right for them, um, knowing the frequency with which they will need to have that test repeated. The other disadvantage for the home-based test like fecal occult bloods and, and stool DNA tests, of course, is that if it finds something, well, now you need a colonoscopy because you need to have an evaluation of the colon. Um, Similarly, uh, for people who opt for, you know, a contrast-based study like a barium enema or a virtual colonoscopy, the one where you swallow the camera, if something is found... You need a colonoscopy because with a colonoscopy, that's the only way that the gastroenterologist or the surgeon can actually look inside the colon, see something, and at the same time as they see it, they can get a biopsy. And potentially, uh, for small cancers, that may even uh, treat the the small lesion if it's small enough. Um, so there's a lot of different options. And I think one thing that's important for our listeners to know is that there are these myriad of options out there. Um, And you should really talk to your doctor about which option uh, is right for you. Now, I think the the other point, though, you know, I was at a, a health fair earlier uh, this weekend, actually, um, in uh, Richmond, Virginia. And we were talking about cancer prevention and awareness and screening and so on. And, and one of the misnomers, I think, or, or misperceptions about colorectal screening, particularly because we say everybody over the age of 50 should uh, undergo colorectal screening, is whether colorectal cancer only occurs in people over the age of 50. Actually, there's been a huge um, upswing in um, the cancer burden in the younger generation. Um, younger uh, people are getting can- colorectal cancer at a much higher rate, and we're not exactly sure why that is. So there are a lot of efforts in Connecticut and around the country to get colorectal screening in much younger patients. Yeah. And, and so while, you know, screening guidelines still recommend for people over the age of 50, I think uh, one thing that is important for our younger listeners uh, to remember is that if you have any of the common symptoms uh, that may be warning signs for colorectal cancer, uh, that you should go and get yourself checked. Uh, So things like blood in your stool, change in bowel habit, change in the caliber of your stool, feeling of bloating, uh, abdominal discomfort, uh, unexpected weight loss. These are all signs potentially of of colon cancer. And you should remember that no matter what age you are, you should really get these things checked out. Now, Maria, one of the things that you mentioned was the efforts that the partnership has had in working with insurance companies to make sure that screening is covered. I was under the impression that with the Affordable Care Act, many of these preventative services were covered, screening tests and so on. How has that changed or is that changed um, 
are insurance companies mandated to cover uh, screenings, all screenings, only some screenings, or is this really an issue? Well, in particular with the colorectal screening, um, with a colonoscopy, uh, it's considered a screening during the colonoscopy, but if a biopsy, as you mentioned, is taken, then it's considered treatment, and a patient could wake up and have had a completely different procedure than they were expecting, and that the insurance company will, might or might not cover at that time. Mm. So we've been working with insurance companies to make sure that the whole scope and the range of treatment from screening to treatment is covered, at least in making sure that patients understand their rights and their responsibilities when it comes to um, what is what is covered and what is not. And I guess the other question is, you know, there are patients uh, in our state and in all states who don't have insurance. And now that there is no individual mandate, um, they are not obligated uh, to have insurance to cover these these screening tests. And for, for those patients, what are their options in terms of uh, for patients who don't have insurance to get these screenings done? There's a number of community organizations, community health care organizations um, all around the state who have relationships with providers uh, who will give screenings pro bono. Um, and they're also covered by various grants and um, awards through CDC or, or private organizations to cover these screenings. We do understand how important these screenings are. And so that's an option for, for people. They can um, go and they can find a, a, a location like that. And so how do people how do people find out about that? I mean, I know that there's community health clinics where many of the these uh, people go. Um, is that where they start or do they call the partnership or the American Cancer Society or you can contact that... yes, you can contact the partnership absolutely and we have a list of organizations that offer um, free screenings um, and we'd definitely be able to point you in the in the right direction. If I don't know off the top of my head, I can definitely find out with our network of, of partners throughout the state, there's probably someone who's going to be able to help you. Yeah. Um, and, and so I think that that's really important as we think about even if you get a pro bono screening, as you mentioned, there's all of the costs associated with treatment downstream, um, which really raises the issue of making sure that people have good insurance coverage for all of their health care needs. We need to take a short break for a medical minute, but please stay tuned to learn more about the Connecticut Cancer Partnership with their executive director, Maria Grove. Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca. The Beyond Pink campaign aims to empower metastatic breast cancer patients and their loved ones to learn more about their diagnosis and make informed decisions. Learn more at lifebeyondpink.com. This is a medical minute about head and neck cancers. Although the percentage of oral and head and neck cancer patients in the United States is only about 5% of all diagnosed cancers, there are challenging side effects associated with these types of cancer and their treatment. Clinical trials are currently underway to test innovative new treatments for head and neck cancers, and in many cases, less radical surgeries are able to preserve nerves, arteries, and muscles in the neck, enabling patients to move, speak, breathe and eat normally after surgery. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to Connecticut Public Radio. This is Dr. Anise Chagpar, and I'm joined tonight by my guest, Marie Grove. We're talking about the role of the Connecticut Cancer Partnership 
in the state of Connecticut and their current initiatives. We talked a little bit at the top of the uh, show about the partnership, which is really a conglomeration of all of the different uh, associations, hospitals, and providers who are interested and active in the area of cancer to really keep our state uh, and the population of our state cancer-free as much as we can. Before the break, we talked about one of their big initiatives, which was with regards to colorectal screening. But Maria, you had mentioned that the other big initiative was with regards to HPV and cancer awareness. Tell us more about that. HPV is, um, well, we have a vaccine for HPV now that will um, prevent six different types of cancers. It's recommended for boys and girls ages 11 through 12, but you can get it as late as 45, uh, which is a new um, FDA ruling. Um, The idea is that uh, when you get it at 11 or 12, uh, it's before any uh, exposure to HPV has occurred. Um, It benefits... um, as I said, boys and girls to get this. And it's two shots. Uh, so you can't just have the one in the uh, at the appointment. Um, we're recommending it at the same time um, as um, measles, mumps, and rubella. Um, at, so you have to ask your pediatrician. Hopefully your pediatrician will bring it up. But you do have to ask your pediatrician for um, this particular vaccine. One of the efforts that the partnership is working on is um, provider awareness. Having those tough conversations with parents um, to add another vaccine to, to the list. At the moment, it's not required for school-age children um, in the state of Connecticut. There are other states in New England and around the country who have required it for school, but HPV the vaccine is not required in Connecticut. I hope personally someday that will change. But um, at the moment, um, we're relying on informed parents and informed providers. And so tell us a little bit more about uh, HPV vaccine and the six different kinds of cancers that it prevents. Many of us may know about cervical cancer, but what are the other forms of cancer that HPV is associated with? Oh, you got me. All right. Let's see. It's um, it's anal Head and neck, likely. Head and, ne- head and neck. That's um, that's a big one. And that I mean, head and neck is in, is interesting. Um, that's uh, a, a growing um, cancer burden in young men, um, and that's not something that people are aware of. As you said, cervical cancer is is the thing that people assume it is, and then they assume that boys don't need to get the the vaccine. But head and neck cancer. Um, and a variety of yeah, others. Yeah, I mean, six. head and neck kind of sums up a lot of uh, a lot of cancers. Absolutely. And then there's all kinds of non-cancer related things that HPV is associated with, everything from genital warts and so on. Absolutely. Um, and so, you know, a lot of people, and, and the reason I bring it up is because, you know, you mentioned that both girls and boys should get vaccinated. And a lot of people think, well, why should my boy be vaccinated? I mean, he doesn't have a cervix. Right. Um, but the the whole concept of uh, head and neck cancers, esophageal cancers, anal cancers, these are ubiquitous. And so really um, vaccinating people against HPV can reduce your risk in many of these cancers. Um, so 
how are the efforts with regards to screening going in our state? Well, you know, are most kids getting screened, uh, most people getting vaccinated these days, or is this really something where we need to put a lot more attention? We're doing very well. We're um, we're high in our New England neighbors in terms of vaccination rates. Um, we're doing very well. Um, the problem is there's no central location for uh, vaccines, and that's all about to change now. The Department of Public Health is launching something called CTWIZ which will um, chart uh, vaccinations from birth to 18 um, and we'll have a much better sense of what's going on in the population. And then we'll be able to also then work with providers in terms of catch-up vaccines. I can just say from my own personal experience, um, you know, I'm very involved in this uh, area. Um, my daughter um, received her first shot uh, at 12 and then because of life and circumstances, she's now almost 14 and hasn't gotten in the second shot. So I'm in that location where I'm in that that area that needs to do the, the catch-up vaccine. Now she's getting the catch-up vaccine next month when she goes for her appointment. Um, but it was uh, not something that the pediatrician called me to follow up on to make the appointment. You have to be so proactive. And so that's what CTWIZ is going to be able to give us a much better idea in terms of data and surveillance of what population, what ages, and what groups need the catch-up vaccine. Because we, we have a very very good uh, initial vaccination rate, but then it's the catch up. And so tell us more about the CT Wiz. Is this going to be a public facing platform where parents, for example, will be able to get a reminder that, oh, my gosh, you know, the second dose is due? Or will this be more of a provider facing platform where providers will get a best practice advisory pop up on their computer screen saying this patient requires a catch up vaccine? How does it work exactly? My understanding is that it's going to be both, uh, both provider and public facing. Um, The idea is that uh, it will give providers a better opportunity to make sure that the vaccines are on track and that also parents will be able to see what has and has not been received. Um, And then we can use that information to just have better vaccination rates. You know, one of the questions I often have when we think about HPV vaccine, especially when, you know, you consider that the vast majority of cervical cancer, not all, but the vast majority of cervical cancer is caused by three main serotypes of HPV, And we have very good vaccines against these serotypes. So again, it doesn't eliminate cervical cancer, but pretty much. uh, I think the rate is somewhere north of 90%, 98% of all cervical cancers are HPV related. Mm -hmm. So why is it that there is uh, some trepidation in vaccinating kids against HPV? I mean, you said that these were difficult conversations. Why is that difficult? It's difficult because HPV is a sexually transmitted disease, and the idea is that the HPV vaccine um, prevents six different types of cancers, and not all of them are sexually transmitted. It, it's a complicated issue. Um, most parents, when they're in the pediatrician's office with their 11-year-old, can't even imagine that their child will be having sexual relations in the next few years. Um, but the idea is that this this vaccine prevents six different types of cancers. It's not a, a green light to, to go and have sex. It's not a, a green light to 
be promiscuous. This is this is a, a cancer-fighting vaccine, and the the country of Australia has all but eliminated um, HPV-related cancers because of their efforts for HPV vaccination. Uh, and I think that we can take that as as a wonderful marker for Connecticut. It's a it's a great opportunity for us. But I do know, you know, as a parent, I'm actually a, a cervical cancer survivor myself. Um, there's a lot of discussion about the vaccine uh, and if it's safe. Um, it, the, the vaccine itself is 20 years old. Um, I, it wouldn't have, uh, I wouldn't have been able to receive it. I was younger than that. Um, uh, so I, I missed the opportunity to, to get the vaccine myself. Um, but I know, being a, a cervical cancer survivor now, that um, what what if? What if I had had that vaccine? And so I, I take it as a responsibility to give my daughters that. And if I had sons, it would be the same way. Um, we are, you know, parents, I, I can understand, as I said, it is a very complicated subject. There comes into vaccination um, concerns and also the sexuality concerns. But really, at the end of the day, it prevents six different types of cancers. And we have a responsibility to our children to, to prevent that. If we can and we do have this tool, why not use it? Right. You know, and I think the other thing is, uh, aside from, you know, parents don't ever think that their children will have sex. Uh, the news flashes, they, they will. They will. Um, uh, and the other the other big concern is with regards to vaccines in general. Uh, and I think that there are a plethora of data to suggest that vaccines and the HPV vaccine is no different is very safe. Absolutely. Um, and so, you know, when you talk about um, patient and provider education, um, do you provide both patients and providers with data on the fact that, you know, HPV vaccinations will not, you know, lead to autism, for example, and so on. Absolutely. One of the efforts of the Connecticut Cancer Partnership is um, in uh, making sure that more providers receive the You Are the Key training, which is from the Centers for Disease Control. We have a wonderful partner um, in the southern part of the state who's giving uh, these workshops, and we've all gone through it. The members of the partnership have gone through it as well. And it's an opportunity for um providers to learn how to have the difficult conversation and how to address any issues that might come up during a patient visit. Um, and, and so the um, the next step for that, you are the key training, is to provide it to more dental providers. Mm. Um, I spoke with my dentist and I said, do you ever recommend the HPV vaccine? And he said, well, I, you know, I don't, I, I should, I, I don't think about it that often. But um, to, to get that message from different locations, so if I were to bring in my, say, 10-year-old to the to the dentist and, and he or she brings up the HPV vaccine and talks about the six different types of cancers that it can prevent, um, and then when I go to the pediatrician the next year for the 11-year appointment, I hear it again. Um, it, it's coming from different and trusted sources. It, it's a wonderful opportunity. Right. And, and I think that, that that is so critical. The other piece of education, however, and I, 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 I hope that you'll address this, is, you know, if you have 
HPV vaccines, do you still need to be screened for different cancers? So, for example, do you still need a pap smear even if you've had an HPV vaccine? Yes. Yes, you do. Um, you have to continue to be, um, it's just considered surveillance and it's good practice. Um, I, uh, I, as I said, I'm a, I'm a cervical cancer survivor. I still have a pap smear uh, regularly because um, the, the cancer might come back, the HPV uh, might still be there. Uh, so there are different um, tests that are, are important for screening, even if you get the vaccine. Yeah. So, so importantly, remember cervical cancer, a good proportion, over 90 percent, I think it's close to 98 percent are caused by HPV, and we can all but eradicate these with the vaccine, but there's still that 2 percent, so people still need to get that screening, which then brings us back to a conversation that we started to have before the break, which was, how do you get this screening? Is it covered? What if it's not covered? How do you have this conversation with your insurance company? That's a good question. Um, you know, I, I don't know if you have the conversation with your insurance company, but you have it with your provider, and you, you can you can talk about options, and you can talk about different locations of where it might be possible to get the screening. Um, similar to the colorectal screenings, there are many community clinics uh, around the state who offer free screenings. It's very important. Um, so it's there. There are options out there for people. And then finally, and you you kind of touched a little bit on this before the break as well. Tell us about the efforts that the partnership is having in terms of getting healthcare covered, um, not just the community resources with regards to screening, but the thing about screening is that every so often you're going to find a cancer, and the great news about that is if you got screened, you're going to catch it early. Yay! Uh, when it's most treatable, double yay. But that is only of benefit if you can get treatment. And so what is the partnership doing about increasing access and affordability to cancer care throughout the state uh, for people who can't afford it. Absolutely. I mean, the, the level of insurance coverage is directly correlated with the access to health care. Um, so we uh, at the partnership are very interested in health disparities, making sure that various populations have access to the education about screening and what's needed, and also actual access to the screening themselves. We want to make sure that we are um, promoting and advocating for the recommended screenings. And we're doing it in the right languages. We're doing it in the right communities. Um, and then we're making sure those resources are available. Maria Grove is the executive director of the Connecticut Cancer Partnership. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu. And past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. I'm Bruce Barber, reminding you to tune in each week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on Connecticut Public Radio.